Transport yourself back in time and explore the fascinating and harrowing story of the Titanic's maiden voyage. Now open at COSI. Don't miss Titanic, the Artifact Exhibition. This epic exhibit features over 200 authentic artifacts recovered from the ocean floor. Discover poignant passenger and crew accounts and majestic recreated interiors, including the iconic Titanic Grand Staircase. Tickets for Titanic, the Artifact Exhibition are on sale now. Book your voyage at COSI.org. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg of the Remnant Podcast. The Remnant is brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Go to thedispatch.com for all of your uh, coronavirus update needs and maybe some other things as well. And uh, today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Donors Trust. And um, we are breaking with a string of uh, maiden appearances on... Uh, the remnant to go to one of the crowd favorites uh, for reasons that historians will be debating for generations to come. Uh, my old friend, former colleague, uh, current friend still, uh, Jim Garrity. Jim, welcome back. Jonah, I would say it's good to be with you, but I'm not really with you, at least not in the physical sense. Um, this Everybody's doing podcasts from home these days. This is, you know, I, the other night I saw Jimmy Fallon doing The Tonight Show from home. It is a weird new uh realm of entertainment and public discussion where we get to see exactly what everyone's homes look like yeah um um i'm actually doing this in my wife's home office which is packed to the gills with stuff because we cleaned out the attic because we were going to redo our daughter's room before she came back from spain and then she came back from spain and now she has to live in the guest room which is also packed with stuff so it's 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 not great for viewing, but I did the Glop podcast the other night from my back porch while smoking a cigar, and that went over pretty well. So that was pretty cool because we did that on video, mm-hmm. which was kind of fun. Um, so I feel like I'm not alone in this, but maybe I'm a little on a different page than you because uh, my women folk have been out of town and I've been alone for the last 14 days or so. And. Um, but I see other people, other men making reference to this on the Twitters. Why do you think it is so difficult for men, and I'm including myself in this, to shower on a regular basis when under home quarantine? <laughs> um, so you're, you're you're truly socially isolating, Jonah. You you are not around with any other human being. Um, I, I, for better or for worse, uh, the the kids. I'm in Virginia. The kids are home from school. They've been out of school since March 12th. Uh, the local schools are trying to set up distance learning, and that's, you know, moving about as quickly and easily as a kidney stone, it sounds like. And uh, so I've got people around. So I'm just continuing to shower every morning. I'm very much I one am. of that, that mentality of but keep in mind. I mean, people I, I've worked from home for National Review pretty much since I joined, which was 2004. And if you want to talk about being really remote from the office, I was in Turkey for two years. So that's really, you know, coming into the office wasn't going to happen all that often. So I'm used to working from home most of the time. I'm not so used to... No, we've been training for this all our lives. You could say that. For some (laughs) of us, you know, social distancing, it's it's not a recommendation. It's a lifestyle. Um, That's right. Um, But uh, but on the one hand, 
life is normal. On the other hand, having other people around as I work is um, not as running as smoothly <laughs> as as the rest of everything else. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the, part of the reason I ask is because uh, I saw Todd Harris, political consultant. I don't know if you know him, but I, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm kind of friendly with him. And apparently his whole family had took a vote and made him take a shower. <laughs> and, um, and uh, um, you know, when I, I'm planning on showering before my wife and daughter come home later this week. But, good, um, good. But I was trying to figure out how I could sell. It's not musk or body over. I like to call it manbrosia. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, apparently that doesn't sell. So... Anyway, I guess we should talk about like stuff. Um, one of the things I'm actually really interested in, and which you've been doing heroically good work on um, uh, of late, you've really been firing on all cylinders of late. Uh, you, re- for listeners who don't know, because of that horrible head injury, um, Jim is uh, uh, writes the um, the Morning Jolt, which has really turned into um, must reading, and. Uh, you did this catalog of China's lies about all of this. And um, I'm getting angry with China these days. So why don't you run through that? Sure. Um, things have, you know, it's very weird to go through what is obviously a terrible time for the country. And as I mentioned, you know, life at home is, is continuing fine. We're all healthy. My family's healthy. You know, life is good in all the important ways. Uh, and with nothing else to do and not able to go out and dawdle and go walk browse around a bookstore or do anything else during the day, I'm getting an enormous amount of work done. Um, and perhaps, you know, if you're if you're like me, you're finding uh, the threat of this virus frightening and stressful and, and all that stuff. One of the ways you can deal with it is try to throw yourself into your work. Um, but, Jonah, it turns out when the coronavirus is what's frightening you and stressing you and causing you all the problems, Doing a lot of work researching the coronavirus is not actually helping. Uh, that does not actually not relax ideal. you yeah. in any way. But uh, one of the first things I started thinking about, actually, I should give credit where it's due. Um, my wife and I were talking about this, and she mentioned complexity theory. Now, my wife is much brighter than I am. But it's the general gist. This, that, this is known. Yeah, well, that's, that's you know, it's pretty evident every day, probably. Um, but, uh, the, the gist is things don't happen for one reason. They happen for more complex systems are more likely to have more complex reasons why things happen. And the easiest example of this is the Titanic sinking. Um, why did the Titanic sink? Well, it hit the iceberg, but also there were a variety of things that happened in a row that made the disaster of the Titanic turn out the way it did. They couldn't find the, the kind of iron they wanted to use in the rivets. So they had to use the second best iron that they could. Um, there were binoculars for the lookout for the lookout folks, but they were locked up, uh, on, in a, in a chest and not available for the lookout guys because of delays in construction. It went late, you know, at the winter time, as opposed to the original time it was supposed to sail. Um, and you can look at all these things and, you know, it's, it's a cascading effect of one thing after another. So I wanted to look at what would it take? When did we lose control over when, when was it no longer possible to contain the coronavirus? So I had to go back and look, see when was the first reference to a strange flu in, in doctors are encountering in Wuhan. And the first that I can find, I think it was based on a Lancet article, was back December 1st. Or, I'm sorry, the first symptoms of the first recorded victim was December 1st. Um, I believe the first. And so basically by early December, doctors in Wuhan know they're dealing with something and are wondering if it's a recurrence of SARS or something like that. 
It was not until about December 20th that there was any type of official statement from the Chinese government. And, I'm sorry, sorry for, I guess about late December. I don't have the document in front of me, so people go check it out on nationalreview.com. Um, China's lies about COVID-19 or something like that should bring it up in, in a Google search. Uh, but the general gist is that for the first anywhere from three weeks to six weeks of this crisis, China was telling the world this cannot be transferred from person to person. This was not only do we know this a lie now, uh, but Chinese doctors on the ground were encountering this mid-December at the slightest, at, at, the, at the latest. They were knowing that they were people were getting infected and having to quarantine their own doctors in that uh, time period. So for a considerable amount of time, China is saying, don't worry, this is just something they got from some market. Very early on, it was very clear that a bunch of these people had not been to this particular market. And so that there was no way to tra- you know, trace this back to contact with an animal. Um, and uh, you know, a lot of epidemiologists and virologists look at this and say, well, if you spend three weeks to six weeks telling people false information, it gets a lot harder to contain it. Uh, my de- in my timeline that I put together, I stopped it around January 26th or so. By that point, it was in like six or seven countries. Um, it was only one or two that were known of at that time, but chances are you were seeing lots of people uh, still traveling out of Wuhan. The direct flights from Wuhan to, I believe it was either LaGuardia or JFK, did not stop until January 23rd. So if you're wondering why is New York getting hit really bad, that's a big reason. Um, about 4,000 people left Wuhan to the United, various places in the United States every month for, in 2019. We don't have good numbers for uh, what it was in 2020. Um, China was letting lots of people who were likely carriers leave the country and spread it to other places knowingly because they didn't want to admit they didn't have the situation under control. So, Jonah, your, your anger is well-founded. And, I, you know, there are a lot of reasons I'm looking towards, the, you know, when we're on the other side of this. A big reason is how this country and the rest of the world decides to deal with China. Um, do you think, I mean, I, I've been poking around about it. Tom Cotton, who I sometimes have trouble separating the Wahoo from the serious guy because they're both in there. But um, uh, he tweeted, and I, I, I meant to look it up before we went on, that China is reclosing its movie theaters. Yes. In fact, as um, yeah, which is a strange thing to do if you've now if you've been saying that you've got it completely under control and there are no new cases. Why would you need to do it? Um, it just seems to me it's it's weird how bad not just the media but also like our intelligence agencies have been in telling the public, uh, uh, sort of puncturing the party line that's coming out of China. I mean, there's just something yeah. there's something weird to all that. I, look, there are a couple of factors that go into this. Um, by the way, as you probably saw that article, I don't know if it was the, the Times or the Post a little while ago, Jonah, the intelligence community was paying attention to this. It may or may not have filtered all the way up to the people it needed to, but the intelligence community was aware of this. And in fact, they were a couple of weeks ahead of everyone else in terms of their thinking about what do we do about this situation. Um, but as for uh, uh, what's going on with China, as we are speaking, this is early afternoon on the 31st of March. I have something that's already on the editor's desk at National Review. Um, they can, you know, by the time people hear this, it'll probably be out there. It wasn't just the theaters, uh, which was probably one of the biggest and clearest examples of this. Um, they also have shut down a whole bunch of these skyscrapers in Shanghai, the Shanghai tower. I have this in front of me. I don't have this all committed to memory. Shanghai tower, Shanghai Oriental Pearl tower and Jinmao tower, uh, temporarily closing. 
Okay. Yeah. Uh, Ocean Park, the Shanghai Chai, Hai Chang Ocean Park, Madame Tussauds Shanghai, and other indoor sightseeing and entertainment attractions have also been suspended. Also, internet cafes have been suspended and closed in many places across China. All of these are indications they do not have this under control, as they say. They have closed all their borders to foreign nationals. The soccer leagues do not know when the season will restart. The National University entrance exam has been pushed back to July for the first time in the history. And Beijing is barring anyone from Hubei province, which is where Wuhan is, if they don't have a job or a residence registry. These are all pieces of evidence indicating that China does not have this under control. And, you know, I'm getting this from looking around to... English language translations of other international media. Now, I know that the Chinese government has attempted to kick out the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, New York Times, Time Magazine. Look, if you're a Western press and you're trying to report on what is going on in an authoritarian closed society, you're going to have some challenges. Okay. Um, one other thing, you know, an institution that did do a pretty good job of this is National Public Radio, uh, which is, I know, as conservatives, mm. we're supposed to, to, to spit as we say that. Um, hey, I'm the house goy at NPR now. Yeah. I'm, I'm fine with They that. quoted four sources in Wuhan that said that uh, there are several, they have no less than four, 10 to 15% of patients who are pronounced recovered have tested positive again. Um, that they are largely asymptomatic. They're not having terrible cases. But so you look at that, that, that might just be test error. Okay. But that is mm-hmm. an indication that the virus is still floating around in Wuhan. And all of these pictures we've seen from Chinese state media of smiling doctors and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's not the story. That's not accurate. And I know, you know, one of this is reflects the fact that the U.S. media for probably at least two decades, maybe an entire generation, have lost interest in international news. And it's this vicious cycle. They don't cover it. So there's no audience interest in international news. So they don't. So they close down their bureaus. There's you know, our ability, the American public's ability to understand and know what's going on overseas has shrunk dramatically over the past generation. With fewer resources, we are, you know, we, we I'm, I'm looking at international, I'm looking at British papers, I'm looking at um, English language, Malaysian papers, you know, all that kind of stuff to put this information together. It would be nice if the U.S. media had the capacity to report on, on these sorts of events all around the world. Um, and I think that just as we were talking earlier this year when the uh, Iranian general um, Qasem Soleimani was killed, I, I remember at one point watching in exasperation and saying, this really isn't a Trump story. I mean, Trump you know, authorized the shoot, the the, assassin, the, the killing. Um, that you know, that, that's a aspect of it, but it's not primarily. This is going to have big ramifications, well beyond what does this mean for the twenty twenty election and stuff like that. And there were a lot of people who didn't want to have that conversation because it was either easier, more convenient, or dare I say, they were only intellectually equipped to have a discussion about what does this mean for Trump? Is this good for Trump? Is this bad for Trump? The coronavirus is not primarily a Trump story. We can talk about what he's done and what he's not done. I got a lot of beefs with him. But by and large, we have much bigger issues to deal with rather than, well, do you like, you know, is this good? You know, is this good for Trump? Is this bad for Trump? Is this likely to add to his reelection? So I, okay, so we have well, my open talk about Trump for some because yeah. we're going to try and get someone um, on later this week to do uh, from the mysterious Orient. <laughs> to talk about all of this. So um, we don't need to dwell on this. Um, but uh, so here's another thing I've just been meaning to look up, but, you know, I only have so much free time being locked in my house 24 <laughs> hours a day. Um, and, you know, I got to get through the final season of The Sopranos. So, you know, you know something's got to give. And uh, so 
I don't know if you've noticed this, but at every press conference, about eight times to 20 times, Trump or Vice President Pence or both of them mentioned that Trump was brilliantly and heroically instituted a travel ban with China very early, right? Uh, we hear this a lot. He, it, They have legitimate reason to bring it up because it was the right thing to do and they, got, they caught a lot of crap for it. But do you have any sense of what the Trump administration did with those two months that 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 travel ban bought? Because it sure seems to me that Trump thought, okay, I checked the box. Now let's go back to talking about Sleepy Joe. And he did he did something right. And they convinced him to do that because it was in his ideological, our ideological is the wrong word, in his uh, rally bumper sticker comfort zone of he likes the idea of closing borders and travel bans. That's his thing. It's very strong. He likes to use the word strong while he's talking about how strong he's being. That was a strong decision. But the travel ban only helps if you use it to buy time to do other things to get ready because you know the thing's actually going to get here regardless, even if you don't let people get on planes. So is there a, I mean, I know you're, you are not a, um, you know, you're not a legendary water carrier for Donald Trump or anything like that, but you try harder than I do these days to give him the benefit of the doubt. Um, what did he do with that time that he bought he bought the country with the travel ban, which was a good thing to yeah. do? Yeah, I, I think you're characterizing it accurately. And let's point out that like by January 31st, uh, when he instituted this, the virus was in Italy. The virus was in a bunch of countries in Asia. Um, a travel ban from China stops some people who have the coronavirus coming over here, but wasn't going to stop all of them. And you could probably are you know it, it, you are accurate in that. And also, like one of the things that really bugs me about this is that this you know the, the administration would very prefer to to memory hole all the times Trump said things like in his first in, his first interview with C, uh, CNBC over at the. Um, uh, the, the Davos conference. It's one person from China. We, we got it. We bottled it up. It's taken care of. Uh, probably the most egregious one was when there are 15 cases and he says it'll soon be down to zero. Um, right. I have, those- I actually, though personally in terms of like our, our 25th amendment territory is when he had said at the lab that he's really good at this stuff because his uncle was a physicist at MIT. Yeah. Um, look, the, the only reason I, 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 I was by no means a, a, you know, perfect prophet in all of this, but I did write about this fairly regularly in Japan in January. And one of the reasons that, you know, freak, there are two things that jumped out at me early on. Step one was, I don't know if you saw the video in which they were driving trucks through Wuhan and they had this giant cannon like thing that was spraying out what was a mist. And I'm guessing it was a, a bleach or some other disinfectant type compound they were trying to use to kill off the virus being on surfaces or anything. And it just looked like something out of a science fiction movie. So I, and I, I got to go back and see exactly what date that was. But I looked at it, I was like, whoa, okay, you don't see that every day. And then the second one was, okay, Wuhan, most Americans have never heard of Wuhan, right? Shanghai, they shut down. And then eventually Beijing, okay? Shanghai is one of the, the economic centers of the entire country. It's the biggest port. It's where all the stuff that they make has to go out. You don't shut down the biggest port in your country unless you've got something huge, Right. And we know the Chinese regime are not a people who are overflowing with respect for human rights and, desire, and an overwhelming uh, uh, desire for, to take care of their people. 
the only reason a country that, you know, like China would shut down, the, the, you know, effectively shut down a big chunk of its economy, much like we're being forced to do right now, is if the, what they were trying to prevent was something much, much worse than this. So that's, you know, that's when the giant, I, I realize we now have a giant emergency siren going around on the top of the Empire State Building, like something out of, you know, nightmare out of Ghostbusters or something. But like that was when I first like, okay, this is something really big. I have a smidgen of sympathy for the president uh, for this, if he couldn't get his head around the scale of what we were dealing with, because I think a lot of people had a very hard time getting their head around the scale of what we were dealing with. I kept hearing through the grapevine is July turned into February that there were people on the Capitol Hill that the CDC briefings on this were really scary. I could never get anything you know more specific than that. So it, Senator Burr did. You should have talked to him. What's that? Senator Burr did. Yeah. Got, got the- <laughs> right? I mean, like, you know, clearly something was happening in those briefings that were, you know, I, I have found myself quoting one of your favorite phrases, Jonah. Uh, we're all going to be wearing hockey masks and assless chaps. You're referring to Mad Max, um, you know, this post-apocalyptic <laughs> landscape. So, you know, there's, I have a smidgen of sympathy for lawmakers or people in positions of authority. And again, we've also been through swine flu, H1N1, um, all these other pandemics that weren't didn't hit the United States that bad. And that most of us like, what was all that about? You know, all right, big deal. You know, this happens every couple of years. This is not going to be that bad. Clearly, this is a completely different uh, uh, type of, of crisis here. So I have a smidgen of that. But again, the, apparently they all believe that the CDC tests were going to be fine. They were not. I, I think there's been an important lesson of this of, when you have a, a gathering storm, when you have some sort of crisis that's barreling down the pike at you, I know we all love to quote the, was it Calvin Coolidge who said, if you, 10 problems are coming down the way, nine of them are going to go off the road before they they, they hit you. Or yeah, like nine that. are going to roll into a ditch before they okay. hit you. Yeah. You know, okay, yeah, but that 10th one is going to really do a lot of damage if it gets through. Okay. And this was a situation, I, I think the lesson of this is don't put all your eggs into one basket. If the CDC tests, the original batch of tests they put together were fine, we'd probably be in much better shape than we are right now. They were not. I don't, and I'm, as of this conversation, I don't know what exactly went wrong in that process. As soon as the CDC, the Food and Drug Administration said, you guys can make your own tests, all of a sudden labs all across the country could start generating their own tests. All of a sudden companies all across the country are like, well, hey, we can do that. We know that kind of stuff. Um, just in case anyone's feeling a little too confident about things these days, I am now starting to hear occasional claims of concerns about the supply of the reagents, the chemicals that they use to tell whether the test is positive or not. You know, supply chain issues that people really hadn't thought about until they're confront. All of a sudden, you need millions upon millions of tests for for every for all lots of Americans. So, I, I'm trying to recognize. I, I'm trying to have a certain amount of I don't say sympathy, but a a recognition that people in our government are trying to get their heads around a really massive scale problem that we may not, you, this may be the worst that we've seen since the 1918 Spanish flu, right? This, this is a, even when you look back at bad things that have happened in our lifetime, Jonah, 9-11, as God awful as it was, was a regional cancellation of fire, right? Yeah. Hurricane Katrina, as God awful as it was, was a regional problem. This is something that's hitting coast to coast all across the country and really the, you know, the entire world in stages. So, I have a certain amount of this. That having been said, the fact that every official statement um, from the White House has to involve a certain amount of, oh, Mr. President, you're the most swell. Oh, Mr. President, thanks to your leadership. I, I, I realize psychologically the president needs this, but I just think we have bigger issues right now than what the president psychologically needs. 
he's yeah this, yeah no i mean i mean we, yeah th- this is a time for the grown-ups to do grown-up things instead of you know nurturing somebody's you know fragile little ego and i mean i i my basic position on this is like i think the way trump is running the these press conferences is basically just a flat out outrage and it's disgusting um but dwelling on it serves no purpose because, you know, I mean, you, you still need to have the press conferences. And yeah. if you would just not do the Q&A stuff and attack the press, I mean, I, 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 I I'm and I'm and I'm. But, you know, if I if I if I dwell on it too much and people, oh, you're just obsessed with Trump. It was like, well, no, I'm not obsessed with Trump, but we got this national crisis. We may be heading into a legit economic depression. It may be short lived, but, you know, when you start talking about you know, this quarter being measured in double digit points of GDP, that's pretty much a depression, mm-hmm. you know, um, and um, and how long, you know, the recovery is, whether it's V or U-shaped and all that kind of stuff. You've got more people who died than on 9-11 already, you know, and the, and the global economy could be in the crapper. And the idea that you have to take time out of this to praise comrade Trump's Stocktivite strength as he grapples with this invisible enemy and listen to him say the same crap over and over and over again that is essentially, you know, rally talking point substitute stuff. It's outrageous that he can't man up and be a president for the entire country for 45 minutes. And, um, uh, and I, I don't, I, I think it's at least worth being on record, even if it's not worth dwelling on forever, um, about it. Um, I'm also enjoying the fact that there are we now have I think it's it we have three competing weird spins coming out in the sort of the Trumposphere. One is the the true crazies, right? Who are just like it's a hoax. Um, the Candace Owens crowd, this is you know, the 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 Corona truthers, right? Um, which if you would predicted three weeks ago that Richard Epstein would be in that category, I would have laughed you out of the room. But hey, you know, weird things happen. Um, Then you have the, he has been masterfully handling this all along. And you get that mostly from the people who were saying hoax when Trump was saying hoax and then switched when Trump switched. And then you have um, the, the new school you know, leading the pack right now, our friend Henry Olson, who's saying, uh, yes, Trump dropped the ball, but it's the Democrats' fault for impeaching him because it distracted him. And uh, all three of these efforts at narrative formation, I think, are kind of fascinating, albeit kind of pathetic. But it does give you a glimpse of how stupid our politics is going to... You wouldn't have you wouldn't have guessed that this would make our politics stupider, but... <laughs> Here we are. So, um, um, which which narrative do you think coming out of this that we get? Do you think that like what is your explanation for? On the one hand, Trump's approval rating is up, but it's lower than any other rally yeah. around the president's approval rating we've ever seen. Um, I, th- I think the rally around the flag effect is you know predictable, and yeah, it's it's muddle, it's less than usual. Part of this is just a reflection of Trump's personality, and I think somebody else had made the observation that, like. 
Bush after 9-11, Obama as the, you know, Great Recession was taking hold early in his presidency, any comparison you want to make to any previous president in a crisis. They've wanted to be a uniting figure from everybody all across the political spectrum. Trump pretty clearly has no interest in in that. He's not that kind of guy. He's never been that kind of guy. He would say that he was not elected to be that kind of guy. You know, this is who he is. On the the truther part, I mean, I guess the the current thing now is some people on the internet are driving around to their hospitals and looking around at their hospital and and recording cameras. And they say, well, I don't see a lot of people here. So clearly there's not much. Clearly this is, you know, uh, uh, not a real crisis and not a real virus. Well, one, I mean, go to the New York ones, right? I mean, you know, some cities are going to be getting hit much more severe than others. But the ones that aren't being hit, I cannot emphasize this enough. It's not because the virus isn't there. I mean, I suppose it could be in a couple of cases, but in most cases, it's because this 14 day incubation period has kicked in yet. And even in the places where you're not seeing uh, frantic out, it, it's this is not a 9-11 mass casualty event where you're going to see tons of, of ambulances rushing in and bringing in bleeding bodies. Right. Everything dramatic regarding the coronavirus is happening inside with people on respirators. And, you know, the the million dollar question to this entire thing is ICU uh, units and how many people you can fit in those and how many hospital beds in general you have. I am glad that so far, lots of the country, they still have space. But one of the things I'm trying to emphasize, particularly when you hear people are like, well, this just shows how terribly run those big cities like New York and Seattle are. Look, we, we can argue about how well governed they are. And I think there's plenty of arguments to be made about mistakes that are being made in city governments there. But let's also note that as Seattle and New York are, are confronting the coronavirus, they also have big, big hospitals with a lot of doctors and a lot of ICU beds and much higher capacity. Right. They're going to have advantages that Lubbock, Texas is not going to have. They're going to have advantages that Beaufort County, South Carolina is not going to have. Um, and the scenario that I've been, you know, you know, I don't want to say I've been losing. Okay. Okay. I'm not sleeping well, but to the extent that I am, you know, one of the things that is keeping me up is like, what happens if this gets into the villages in Florida? What happens if this gets into parts of the country that have a lot more retirees, a lot more older Americans, um, people who are just going to have both elderly and most likely are going to have diabetes or high blood pressure or some other underlying health issue that makes their survival less likely. Um, there's, you know, this, so the first thing, you know, the idea of, well, I, I didn't see anything in my, you know, I didn't see much going on in the parking lot of my local hospital. You, you know, they don't allow visitors, right? So you're not going to see <laughs> lots of people parking their cars and their, you know, their visitors. Um, I mean, that's just ignorance. I don't, I don't, you know, to, to paraphrase someone a little while ago, ain't, I don't know if this is Jesse Ventura in Predator, ain't got time to bleed. You know, nobody, nobody got time for that right now. Um, no, I mean, but, 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 I mean, this is, it's, it's the classic way of conspiracy of uh, the way the conspiratorial mindset works, which is you start with the conclusion yeah, and then you reverse engineer how you could get to the conclusion. And there's basically almost any assertion that there's any bizarre conclusion you want to come to. If then you only look backwards and cherry pick for the things that would support it, you can construct a narrative to support anything. Mm -hmm. But it's important to realize that, in, you know, in, in social scientific terms, this is all horseshit. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, yeah, and you know, and the number of, and it, 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 I just find the die marker effect where you get people to come out and declare where their first loyalties are to what, you know, 
to what form of fan service they're doing is just interesting mm-hmm. to me. And so the people who are like, you know, the, the Gateway Pundit crowd and the Candace Owens crowd, they feel like it's a smart market decision, you know, business decision to poison people's heads and tell them that this is a, a nothing burger. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's sort of interesting to me that the Steve Bannon crowd, which, as you know, I'm not a huge fan of, um, they at least recognize the seriousness of this, but it's so clearly because it fits a narrative of China of 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 sort of nationalistic anti-China stuff that is, you know, I'm not saying that they are misrepresenting the nature of the disease. To their credit, they're not, but I don't put it past them if that this were a disease coming out of Sweden, that maybe their rhetoric would not be, you know, the same. Um it's just to me it's just sort of interesting to see what for what 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 teams people are signing up for? Yeah, and I'm going to make, you know, the, I'm going to do something a little uncharacteristic, Jonah, and then I'm going to I'm going to acknowledge that people who I think are coming to very wrong conclusions about this and making comments of this isn't that bad, this is comparable to the flu, the country is overreacting, et cetera, et cetera. We all know that the uh, shelter in place, lockdown, quarantine, self quarantine, social distancing rules are having massive economic effect on the country. Yes. Basically every bar and restaurant in the country is trying to get by right now on takeout and delivery and restaurateurs and bar owners will tell you, you can't get by on that. The entire airline industry is effectively is more or less shut down. I understand that uh, my dad lives uh, just outside Hilton Head Island, South Carolina. um, And they currently have one flight coming in from Atlanta uh, every day. Uh, the the locals are debating how much it would cost to get a surface to air missile to to stop those flights coming in, and because they're afraid of you know a lot of retirees down the Hilton Head area, but apparently they yeah. had three three people on the flight, and it's you know usually a small puddle jumper kind of flight, but you know I, that can't be a profitable line for that airline to run all that often. Cruise ships. The weird thing about- is those three people were coming back from a gourmet food tour of, of Wuhan. There you province. go. There you go. Yes. Yeah, anyway. And so, you know, three people, by the way, my understanding the... is according to you know, the rumors, they were all in masks and, and gloves and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. Um, every cruise line, obviously every hotel, every convention center, every big concert, every sporting event in the entire, you know, um, we, we have basically slammed the brakes on large swaths. The only parts of the economy that are functioning are grocery stores, some ground transportation. I mean, oil prices are hitting a, bo- a, a you know the a new bottoms because they haven't uh, had any demand. We are putting in, you know, people are going to lose their businesses over this. People are going to lose their life savings over this. People are going to lose. You know, I get why people really want to see evidence that this isn't that bad, and that everything we've implemented can be undone quickly, and that we should be undone now. I, I get that. I don't think they're right, but I guess there's a part of me that you know in my in my gut yeah, can. I, I, yeah. I'm with you on that. I, I, I really, I'm not trying to demonize the demand side. Mm-hmm. You know, there's an audience for that stuff. I want to demonize the supply side. Yeah. You know, um, uh, the people, you know, Jim Hoft doesn't need to do this to feed his family. He can make up other lies. Um, yeah. And uh, the people, and 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 I'm, I'm much more sympathetic than a lot of my friends, than even, you know, than some of my colleagues at the dispatch about this, this, this tough, um, you know, the trade-off issue about the economy versus the disease. I just think at the end of the day, if you don't defeat, defeat the virus, you don't get the economy working again. So yeah. it's kind of a it, false it, choice, but I get the it. I get the motivated problem. reasoning. Yeah. You can't keep your economy going. As we were just discussing earlier with China, if you decide to reopen everything, 
before the virus is effectively defeated, or at least you have enough capacity, both in your hospitals, enough treatment, you know, ways to make sure that people don't die in large numbers. Even if we open the businesses, I, I kind of wonder, I, I deep down wonder about the psychological effect this is going to have on Americans. It's it's already been scary so far. Um, I, yeah, who's going back to restaurants if you tell people, well, we're opening up the economy, but we haven't defeated this thing yet? Right? I, again, right? I mean, the yeah. idea that like everyone's going out to, oh, let's go to TGI Fridays, woo! You know, I just don't see it happening, you know? Yeah. Um, so uh, let's let's switch gears to the, the post-corona world, right? Which is is coming someday when we emerge from our bunkers and I get to share the glories of my manbrosia with the wider society. Um, but, you know, this is something I've been talking about a bit on here. Um, I am deeply worried as a fan of liberal democratic capitalism and free markets and all of these kinds of things, which were being besieged on the intellectual right from a bunch of different quarters before Corona, right? We have the common good conservatism and the the post-Catholic integralism. And uh, just right before we started this podcast, Adrian Vermeule has a piece in The Atlantic calling for the end of uh, strict construction or originalism and constitutional interpretation. Instead, judges need to be imbued with a sense of the common good and reach their conclusions based on that, which apparently means that Conservatives can have the living constitution now too, which is awesome. Um, and but the the response to all of this, I think, is going to deal. Um, there's a huge potential to deal a grievous wound to the intellectual construct of of limited government and um, free markets that a bunch of yakety yakers like us could never have done um, because. People are going to come out of this. They're going to see the government writing people checks. There's going to be a there's a well documented finding in the social science literature that says once people start getting checks for free, they tend to like to keep getting them. And I'm not begrudging people. People are having a hard time, but there's going to be inertia and path dependence that comes out of this. That is going to and the left is going to push like they have done with every other national crisis for the last 150 years. They're going to say, hey, we did it when we were in the crisis. We should keep doing this stuff. And for people like me and for people like you, I think we may be spending the rest of our lives arguing about what is appropriate when fighting a pandemic is not necessarily appropriate once you've beaten the pandemic. And there's one other group that I think we can count on for having part of that argument, and that's donors trust. In times of national emergencies, those with a giving spirit and a desire to build up civil society try to find ways to be helpful. And that's when it's a good time to have charitable resources ready to deploy when they're most needed. Donors Trust offers donor-advised funds. You can use these funds as your own charitable savings account and manage your charitable giving in a way that's smart, tax-advantaged, and private. Donors Trust clients are using their funds to support local charities working to help their communities while continuing to support the think tanks and liberty-minded organizations that believe federalism, our civil liberties, and our Constitution shouldn't get lost in times of emergency. Now is the time to take a closer look at Donors Trust and join their community of liberty-minded donors by opening a donor-advised fund. Go to 
donorstrust.org slash dingo for our six reasons to use a donor-advised fund and learn how a donor-advised fund can preserve your ability to give charitably. That's donorstrust.org slash dingo. Anyway, so what do you make of all, as I was saying before I got into that uh, stem winder of a question and then the donors trust bit, um, how do you think, do you think the GOP is going to come back to being Reaganite after, you know, the double whammy of sort of Trumpism and then, you know, all hands on deck statism to to fight this thing? Yeah, I, I... I'm going to try to have a certain amount of humility of getting a sense of how this is going to affect the country. Um, Something I've been thinking about a lot lately is the principal of my son's middle school wrote this really beautiful letter to all the students. Um, The last good day of school for my kids was March 12th. And he wrote this letter to all the kids saying that, uh, you know, that not, you know, that they've been through something kind of traumatic, not as traumatic as war, not as traumatic as a natural disaster, but, all of a sudden, all these kids who thought they were going to have to go to school that next day didn't. And, okay, we're not going to have school that here in Virginia. It was, well, we're not going to have school Friday. Well, okay, maybe not for the next week while we're putting together a plan. Uh, okay, no, it's school's out for we're – we're not going to school for two weeks. Wait, no, it's a month. And Governor Northam decided no school till summer or, or until possibly next fall. And uh, apparently there was a, a – they wanted – you know, okay, well, we'll give you a day where you can go back to get school stuff out of your locker. Uh, apparently a, a teacher here in Fairfax County tested positive for, for coronavirus. So they said, no, nobody's going to school or spending two weeks doing deep clean of every antiviral stuff they can. Maybe now kids can go back into school. I don't know if, I, I'm not sure about that, but they've been through something kind of traumatic. They didn't get a chance to say goodbye mm-hmm. to their parents or to, to, sorry, to their, to the teachers, to their friends. Everybody's life kind of got thrown into this, this upheaval. And I wonder about what those psychological long-term effects are going to be. But one of the things I've been thinking about that is, you know, works on quote unquote our favor of Jonah. I don't think I think Bernie Sanders, but my attitude by the way towards the post list is the same attitude I have towards Bernie Sanders when Bernie Sanders wants another debate next month. Dude, have you noticed the global pandemic outside? We're we're kind of trying to deal with some stuff right now. Your no hope presidential bid is gonna have to go not just on the back burner, behind the back burner, up against the backsplash that they keep talking about on HGTV. Okay? That stuff doesn't matter. <laughs> Ain't nobody got time for that right now, right? And so when the post drink goes, well, after this, we're going to reestablish a, you know, more of a papal view. What the f- are you talking about? <laughs> Dude, we're trying to keep the death toll under 100,000 right now, okay? That's kind of job one. We'll deal with all that stuff, one, you know, when, when all that's done. Um, but regarding all this, the other things, I think Bernie Sanders and this whole idea of we're going to cause this grand socialist revolution and we're going to completely change the way. Get the hell. What the hell are you talking about, man? The, the idea that all of a sudden we're going to be in mood for these grand sweeping visions and overhauls of American society. I, I don't. What? Do we not have enough risk in our life right now? Does this seem like a great time to be making big sweeping changes on a system that's, you know, that's holding us together? Like, I think if anything, American public are going to come out of this much more change averse. We're not going to have an appetite for any grand over restructure. I think the, you know, the revolution will be against revolutions. I think people are going to want to, you know, I think long after this, people are still going to, you're going to see, I mean, just on a psychological level, agoraphobia, people being afraid to leave their house, fear of crowds. 
You, you know how you've always said you hate crowds, Jonah, and you hate you know when the mm-hmm. mob people aren't going to want to join mobs. When do we know when this yeah. is gone? China still has the wet markets open, right? This virus, you know, we can get we can kill this virus, and with any luck, that's the sound of me knocking on the wood. Hopefully, we get you know. Hopefully, we don't have a second wave and fall, and hopefully that vaccine gets closer to that twelve month window than to that eighteenth month window. Maybe we can even beat that twelve month window. But you think this is the last uh, pandemic we're ever going to see in our lives? We didn't see this coming. I don't know if we're going to see the next one. Who's to say the next one doesn't happen in some Middle Eastern market or someplace in South America? Like, by the way, while we're all dealing with this here in the first world, this has barely started to hit Africa. This has barely hard started to hit the, the, the Middle East other than uh, uh, Iran. This hasn't started to hit poor countries in Central America. When this thing really burns its way throughout the world, the world landscape is going to look totally different. And so the idea that, you know, I mean, will America come out of this more statist? Maybe. I don't see us. I, I think government will play a bigger role in our lives. But I think the, one of the things that's very strange about this is that even if you're a true Reaganite, small government conservative, this is the sort of situation the federal government is supposed to be there to take care of. So, oh, no, no, I yeah, agree with all right? that. I mean, like, I agree with that. Yeah, so this isn't, you know, so, um, microaggressions. This is not, you know, this, you know, touchy feely, crazy stuff that the left is usually wants to get government mobilized to take care of. This is something that can kill us. And like the first duty of, of government, whether it's terrorism or like protect the lives of the people. And, you know, so I, as long as things are heading focused on that, I have much less of an objection to the traditional big government type stuff than I usually do. Oh, no, no, I, mean, I want to be clear. I have no problem. Look, I, I, I am sure in retrospect, we're going to look at the way this, the, re, you know, the relief bills where you, I don't think you should call it a stimulus, but the way this thing was structured, we're going to discover it was flawed in some way. I don't know what way. And that's all fine. I'm generally in favor of it though. You know, I mean, and you know, the point I've been making is like, as someone who spent a lot of time, as you know, going doing deep dives on the Woodrow Wilson administration, um, uh, I recall how the intellectuals came out of those years, or came out of the New Deal, or came out of World War II, um, and they said, this stuff that we did to fight the crisis, we need to keep for all time, right? And there's a, there's, you know, uh, a long lag time to a lot of these things. Most of the New Deal was structured to supposedly be an emergency response to the Great Depression. How much of it did we ever dismantle? Not a lot, right? Um, and uh, and so my only point is is that like I, I I wrote a column about this last week. Um, I keep hearing on MSNBC. I watch a lot of MSNBC. I, for reasons having probably to do with original sin. And um, the, the, I just happened to catch Cory Booker, our favorite senator, um, go on Ari Melber's show. And I got to admit, Ari Melber, I mean, uh, Cory Booker's answer was kind of fine. But the question he got was this long stem wonder question, which I hear like every few minutes on, on MSNBC or on Twitter was, Hey, we've been told all along that we couldn't afford to pay for this stuff mm. and that we couldn't do these things. And now we've done, now we're here and all of a sudden it shows that the government can do this when it's motivated to do it. And, and, and Booker says, well, yeah, that's what happens during a crisis is it expands your moral imagination. And you hear this more and more. I've heard Pelosi. So waterboarding was a stress, was an expansion of our moral imagination too, you know? 
well, in a certain way. I mean, it was a it was a difficult it was a difficult stretch, but you know, it required the, it was sort of a stress position. Um, <laughs> and um, uh, but no, that you know that actually raises a different point that drives me crazy. Since we're talking about living constitution stuff, is that during the war on terror, all of a sudden you had all of these people who, in every other context believed in the most flexible, maximalist inter- misinterpretation of the Constitution possible, but then all of a sudden, during an actual existential fight, they're like, no, 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 to the letter fidelity to the Constitution is what we require. You know, I mean, it was a weird stra- change of lanes. Anyway, um, the point I wanted to make is that that the... You know, after 9-11, Chuck Schumer, he went to the, the Washington Post and he wrote a piece called, it's calling for a new, new deal, right? The, 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 this is a part, point that Robert Higgs and, and Don Boudreaux and these libertarians have been making for a very, very long time about the, the ratchet effect of crises. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it goes back to Randolph Warren's thing about war being the health of the state. And I, I am very concerned that we are going to see um, a lot of people on the left holding on to the, like, how do I put this? I have a strict policy in my house that you're not supposed to take the garden hose and spray it all over the inside of the living room. (laughs) Except when there is a fire. And then you're allowed to do that. But then once the fire is out, it's again against the law, against the rules in my house, to spray the house with a garden hose on the inside. I think we're going to see a lot of people saying, hey, you know, that garden hose thing worked during the pandemic. Maybe we shouldn't give up the garden hose too quickly. And um, and I think we're going to see a lot of cross currents between the sort of Josh Hawley right um, and some people on the left. And it's going to shake up our understanding of a lot of these things. I can't predict it. I hope I'm kind of wrong. But I, I, I think there's going to be a long lag time intellectually and economically on all this no, stuff. I, I think you're definitely correct, particularly in, in categories of spending money. Um, you know, politicians love to spend money. They, they, you know, that's, that's it's, it's jobs, it's influence, it's, you know, that, that's baked in the cake there. Um, earlier today, apparently Nancy Pelosi really believes that the best way we can respond to the coronavirus crisis is to remove the limit on state and local tax deductions that were enacted as part of the 2016 uh, Trump Republican tax cuts. Clearly, that's, you know, I, I am sure as people are getting wheeled into the hospital and intubated, they're thinking, oh, my state and local property tax deduction. It's just, <laughs> I, you know, they're wheezing. You know. um, there's one other aspect. I may, I, I'm going to suggest this, Jonah, and maybe you've already thought about it and written about it. I just, I just haven't seen it. We are also seeing more impositions from government on the average life of Americans on a scale we would never see under any other circumstances, i.e., you know, you're not supposed to travel. Uh, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're supposed to stay in your house. You're only you're they're shutting down businesses. By and large, it's been voluntary compliance. Some communities have curfews. I, I, thankfully, it's not been, you know, shoot on sight. Um, but the sort of thing where they're being told, you know, hey, the cops are just going to say to you, Hey, you really shouldn't be out at this hour. Why don't you go home? By and large, common sense has prevailed. Um, I don't like you know, now. There are, there, when I say by and large, 
governor of Rhode Island said that the police should be pulling over people who don't have Rhode Island license plates and asking what they're doing in the state and going door to door with the National Guard, which, oh, by the way, they're allowed to do under Posse Comitatus, and to uh, say, if you're from out of state, you have to stay in quarantine for two weeks. Um, and you, so you're probably, you're, like Cuomo complained about it because it was targeting New Yorkers. And then the J- Governor Raimondo of Rhode Island decided, OK, we're just going to extend this to everybody from out of state. Um, you probably heard about the pastor down in Florida who ended up having uh, being arrested. And he had been warned quite a few times. Thankfully, the vast majority of religious leaders understand, look, as much as people need spiritual uh, uh, guidance and they're desperate for a sense of feeling connected to other people at this time, we don't want people getting together in large groups and standing close to each other. Um, one of the most fascinating things I've seen this week, Jonah, was a report on local news. I guess was, there's one down in Virginia Beach, and I think there's one closer here in Northern Virginia, where they are getting together in big fields and basically doing drive-in church. Uh, you drive mm-hmm. in, they have loudspeakers, and when, instead of when people would applaud or, or rejoice, they're honking their horns. These are the kind of little adaptations we're going to have to make here. But when you said- How psyched would be? How psyched would you be if you already owned a honk if you love Jesus bumper sticker? I mean, there you go. It's it. You know. we, people, some people have been prepping <laughs> this for a long time, Jonah. Um, <laughs> but in other words, if you see, you know, like all of this stuff, not only is it going to go immediately away, I think anybody who resists, like, like people are seeing just how far the authority of state and local government can get into their lives. And I think most people don't like it. I think most people are honoring it because they recognize it. But, you know, my uh, for a long time, I had refrained from referring to my governor, Ralph Northam, as, Black, as Governor Blackface, um, because I thought up until recently he'd been handling this pretty well. By the way, fantastic example for federalism. Governor Larry Hogan over in, in Maryland has been very, I don't want to say, I don't want to say heavy handed, but in every possible step, he has gone the furthest in response to this crisis. He says the state of Maryland is getting hit really bad. I think, I think that's fine. Governor, uh, sorry, Mayor Muriel Bowser in District of Columbia doing things kind of at a different pace and Governor Ralph Northam. So up until recently had been the guy who was going the least draconian, for lack of a better term, the least extensive Mm. in this. And I liked that. Different, you know, different steps are probably going to be appropriate for different. Th- and one of the other things that kind of comes clear is that the circumstance in Arlington or Alexandria, which are fairly densely populated, it's going to be very different in the southwest corner of Virginia. They, they maybe yeah. the kinds of steps you need in one area aren't really probably going to be needed in another area. A lot easier to do social distancing when people are very spread out in those rural counties. Um, yeah, although I'm, I'm I'm a little cross with Northam because. Um, as you know, I live in the district, but I live very close to both Maryland and Virginia. I'm in like the most northwest corner of the city. And um, there are places where I go in Virginia across the chain bridge to take my dogs. And now they're all closed and I can't get in there. Parks? And, really? Um, because they're... Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yep. As of Sunday, we went to a state park, practiced, you know, social appropriate social distancing. Uh-huh. I think most people realize you can't lock people in their houses, so to speak. Um, this was McLean. You couldn't literally could not get in. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. I wonder if that's a local decision. But anyway, the the gist being that you know Northam decided first to close schools for the rest of the year. I think only Kansas had done at that point. I think Connecticut was looking in that direction. You know, the whole thing is that nobody knows exactly how bad the coronavirus situation is going to be in June, which is when the school year was supposed to end. Who knows? Maybe by May there'll be a, a way to you know get kids back to school. Um, at this point it's looking less so, but he announced this fairly early on. Nope. We're done for the year. He, the shelter in place order that he's put into it, telling people to, you know, practice, you know, to, they, they can go out of your house, you can social distance, but don't travel. And only you're only allowed a certain number of reasons why you're allowed to travel out of it. 
He said it's in place until June 10th. Yeah, which is now, nuts to me. A lot of people who are like, this makes perfect sense for the next... Like, I don't understand why more lawmakers aren't fine with, we're going to try this for two weeks, so we're going to see how things look, and we'll reevaluate it then. And I don't... We, you know, this this is a situation that's come that that's changing every you know changing every day. I, I I'm fascinated by the number of people on social media who are practically screaming at each other about these projections of what the cases are going to be. Of course, you can find flaws in the projections. We're, we're all trying to account for a million little variables. How good are the immune systems of the people who are currently infected? How quickly can they expand capacity at these hospitals and, and emergency centers and then hospital ship up in New York? All these different factors. We don't know. And if people are doing what they're supposed to, the curve will be bent and it won't be that bad. So maybe the projections will be wrong. We'd be happy for them to be wrong. But the idea that like, oh, well, they said they'd have this many cases by this day and instead we're, you know, 140 less. Great. That's what we want to see. Let's keep doing this. This doesn't mean, oh, this whole thing was a giant overreaction. I don't know about you, John. I've dealt with a lot of people like that online and it's, you know. Yeah, no, there's, I mean, it gets back to your point before about how people want this thing to be over and so they get frustrated when they hear stuff that's contrary to what they want to hear i talked about this on a recent episode of glob about the rhode island hunting down the new yorkers thing which you have to be a little careful because for a lot of people new yorker is just code for jew <laughs> um but um so you don't want to new york values new york yeah, that's right jonah i i'd said to donald trump he represents uh New York values, and I think we all know what we meant. Not a Christ guy, um, just not a Christ guy. That's what he is. Um, uh, but I do kind of like, you know, you, you have visions of like the child hunter from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang looking for New Yorkers, or <laughs> I'm picturing Samuel um, Gerard, right? The fugitive. <laughs> we have a New Yorker who's been on the run for ninety minutes. <laughs> um, but uh, I like, like, um, you, you've seen The Great Escape, right? I mean, because is that the Clint Eastwood one? Oh my God, you're a bad person. I, I'm bad. Sorry. Um, Great Escape with with Steve McQueen and, oh, and okay. James Gardner and uh, World War II movie. Yes, uh, Greatest, long, long time uh, ago. Okay. So, yeah. so there's a scene towards the very end, kind of a spoiler. Um, people can fast forward. Um, where you know the Gestapo's out looking for all of the escaped American and British uh, prisoners, mostly British, and. Uh, um, they uh, and they're trying to trip him up by like, you know, uh, lapsing into English after they think they're gonna get away. And there's one point where one of the Gestapo guys just says, after speaking to him in flawless German, just says "Good luck," and the guy says "Thanks," and he goes "Ah," oh, and he realizes that he's just blown his cover right now. He's got to run and all that. And I like the idea of like Rhode Island stadies going around talking to people and just like sort of very casually being like. Go Red Sox, and just seeing whether they can like, <laughs> you know, like all the Yankee and Met fans, like whether they fall for it or not. And if they fall Boston for it, you know, they... yeah. <laughs> Tom Brady's the best, you know. Anyway, I just think there'd be a lot of you know New Yorkers among the shibboleths of New Yorkers. We um, and I've spent years trying to get get myself to stop doing it, but uh, everywhere else. In the country, people say they wait in line, and New Yorkers say they wait online. Uh, Jay Norlinger first pointed this out to me, and um, it gets very confusing now because of the internet. Um, but we've been saying we said it before. Online meant being on the internet. Uh, um, but anyway, I, I kind of like the idea of 
of coming up with how would you, if a New Yorker were undercover, right? If you were in Mufti in Rhode Island, um, what, you know, what would it be as a position on clam chowder, right? Is it cream-based or is it red sauce? And I don't know. I mean, it'd just be kind of fun to come up with a bunch of them. Um, you know, I feel bad that we actually haven't done any actual serious political stuff here. Um, do you, th- so just very quickly, um, do you think Biden is playing this about right? Do you think it's like the state of the union response? There's no way to play this right because you're going to look, you know, he's not a governor, right? Yeah. So he can't look relevant. Um, and on a, I'll do this editor style, uh, zero to 10, zero being, uh, metaphysical impossibility, 10 being guaranteed likelihood or guaranteed, uh, eventuality. Where do you put the draft Cuomo movement? Um, so start with Biden. Sure, so you sure. have a little time to Biden figure out. Biden is, you know, look, I guess he's doing fine. I, I think if anything, okay, actually, I mean, what you're seeing in these videos, he doesn't look great. Um, he's not as mentally sharp. And so in a way, it's, it, first of all, if you're a 70 some year old man who has just come off a primary that you kind of won because the other option terrified so many other swaths of the party, spending some time at home. Uh, and only doing a light schedule of video interviews is pretty good. That's that's kind of actually a very convenient timing for this. And also, at, you know, once the nominee is clear, the stretch between say that you know last competitive primary and the conventions, it's always a little bit of a slower period. Although it's worth noting, looking back to I think 1996, Clinton against Dole, this is when if you're the incumbent, you have the financial advantage and you run a bazillion in one ads and you trash the reputation of the challenger because this is when right. the challenger's campaign can still only spend primary funds. They can't spend general election funds until they're officially the nominee. That That's what Obama did to Romney. Right? Um, so, you know, look, at this point, politics is on hiatus. Um, the, there's really nothing Biden could do right now. I think he would look worse if he tried to, you know, grab back the headline. Um, he's got the primary one. I think I saw the fact, the figure that said that if he, he could lose everything from here on out from like 40% to 60% and he'd still have enough delegates to win the, the, the nomination. Um, you know, stay there, do, do, you know, <laughs> you know, stay in the bunker, see how things look when it comes out. And by the way, like what, what the Biden team really should be doing is thinking about, okay, let's assume we take office in January, 2021, 2021. How different does the country look? What kind of challenges is America of 2021 facing that we didn't know in January that we would be facing because of this coronavirus crisis? Probably the economy, probably, I mean, maybe it comes roaring back, but maybe it won't. Um, we'll have seen a lot of Americans who have been through a, a you know traumatic experience. People will be wondering about healthcare capacity. How many doctors will be overworked? Um, how many doctors will still be dealing with uh, you know the trauma of having to work on a marathon session? Um, how many look? How many practices are going to be out of business? I have a doctor friend I was talking to about this, all elective surgeries have been canceled, yep. right? I mean, if you're an orthopedic surgeon, you you're, you and your hospital, the extent you have a profit margin, it's on like yeah. knee surgeries, Eight. you know, and you can't just like zero out those for three months mm-hmm. and still pay your administrative staff and pay your rent. I mean, there, the healthcare system's taking a big shot. Oh, absolutely. Too. I mean, my... As of this conversation, March 31st, my sense is that the 2020 presidential election will come down to entirely to how the Trump administration handles this crisis. 
And if the sense in the country come fall is, wow, we really dodged a bullet. This could have been so much worse. Trump will get reelected. If the sense is, wow, this was an absolute calamity that we haven't seen in this country in a long time. And the administration did not address this sufficiently. The administration did not handle this right. Then Biden's going to win no matter, even if he goes out and drools on himself. Um, that's, you know, this, this is a referendum. It's going to be a referendum on the incumbent even more so than usual, because there's going to be this really, you know, unique, horrifying, I think nation traumatizing event, you know, six months before election day that, that, you know, this, we're getting something. I I remember after nine 11, wondering what would have happened if 2001 had been a presidential year election or a midterm or something like that. And people, by the way, uh, September 11, 2001 was supposed to be the primary day uh, up in New York Mm -hmm. city. You know, first of all, so the first question is, can we hold the election? How many states will have gone to vote by mail? You know, there, there's all kinds of things that are up in the air right now that we're still thinking about. Um, I think that the duty of the president, the man who takes the oath of office in, in January, the job has changed. I think that Biden would be wise to focus on that part. Um, as for the draft Cuomo thing, this is probably going to, ha- you know, like it's, 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 you're already hearing it. Um, and I guess it depends on how things look when they come on the other side. I can see why Democrats would be looking at that and maybe there'll be such widespread acclamation that, you know, I don't see Biden very easily dropping, you know, giving this off. If for some reason, God forbid, Joe Biden has some sort of health issue and he cannot, you know, continue as the nominee, I'm sure Bernie Sanders would say, oh, wait a second, I won the second most delegates, I should be the nominee. Um, I think things are kind of up in the air right now. I I would say I see one good thing out of the Cuomo um uh, the draft Cuomo movement. And I say this as a guy who has really never been a fan of, of uh, Andrew Cuomo or Mario Cuomo. Uh, I would say Chris Cuomo, but Chris Cuomo right before we got on announced that he has coronavirus. So get better. Yeah, Chris Cuomo. I'm going to, I'll yeah. skip all the Fredo jokes and all that kind of stuff. I've actually loved these sibling rivalry they've done on, on their interviews and stuff. Now so that's some good stuff. I have to the say. country kind of needed a, a laugh like that. Um, but if it, you know, the, the nice thing about the draft Cuomo is the idea of like, Hey, Let's nominate someone because they've handled the crisis well. We know what we're getting with this. I, I, I think it might have been Richard Brookheiser at one of his conversations at National Review said something like, you know, any candidate can come along and say, I'm going to do the right. I, I'm going to I'm going to I promise I'll do good things. Anybody could do that. Anybody could check the right boxes on which positions they support or something like that. Yeah, great. Congratulations. That and three bucks. You get you a cup of coffee at Starbucks if Starbucks was still open. Right. Um, what it really is, you know, what you can't replace is has that person been with you in the fights and what have they done when things really matter? The record, Brookhiser's argument was the record matters more than anything else. Obviously, we weren't all that interested in records uh, back in 2016. And, you know, so the argument of, wow, Cuomo's done an, ama- done an amazing job with this. Which, by the way, I think he's not been 100%. Um, there were comments he was making that people should go on about their lives back in February that don't look yeah, so yeah, hot, yeah, you know, yeah. uh, but by and large, people are really enjoying the briefing. They are very informative and he's trying to keep, you know, keep the lid on a uh, very bad situation up there in New York. So, you know, that indicates people care about records again, that they don't care about uh, charisma. They don't care about, you know, catchy one liners and all that kind of stuff. It's what have you done for me lately, which I think is not a bad way to evaluate a potential president. But, can it actually happen, right? I mean, like yeah. in my, you know, as, as remnant listeners know, I'm a strong advocate for smoke-filled rooms and strong parties, but we don't have those right now. I'm also a very strong 
advocate for pizza that makes you skinny. Um, you know, I'm an advocate for all sorts of things that we can't have right now. And the the added irony is that even if the party were willing to do this, are they really all going to meet in a giant room and without social distancing to yeah. vote on it? That is um, the, that's the that, that's the you know, a big question. Although I'd like to see, I think mid July is when the uh, Democrats are supposed to meet in Milwaukee. Jonah, you hope we are in better shape regarding this virus in mid July than we are now. Um, this morning, at the Washington Post had a report indicating that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention wanted people were thinking about in the next couple of days. They're going to say they want people to start wearing masks when they go outside. Maybe with that, it's easier to get people, if not all together in the main arena room, small groups of each delegation meeting in each one. Um, I, I think, however, what we're talking about, you would probably need either an obvious Joe Biden issue, health issue, where people are like, okay, he, he just, you know, fainted or, or there was some sort of mm. thing where people are like, okay, Biden he got not, coronavirus. Yeah, what? <laughs> Catch it. Yeah, there you go. Like that, that would, that would do it. Um, and then I think the other or something where it became so obvious and glaring that it looked like he was not going to beat Trump. And if, you know, that, that's, that's an easy way to persuade. Look, why did Biden get the nomination? Yeah. Because Democrats thought that he was a safer bet than Trump, than Bernie Sanders was against Trump. The moment they don't think he's a safer bet, they'll start looking elsewhere. It wasn't because they had deep rooted yeah. love for Bidenism or something like that. So Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it would be kind of cool if, you know, I've been to a bunch of conventions. You've been to a bunch of conventions. Um, I think I've been to like all but three in the last 26, 28 years or whatever. Um, uh, I've never seen face mask swag from a convention, <laughs> right? You know, uh, pins for your buttons in it. No, no, <laughs> don't make more holes in them. All right, my friend. Um, I wanted to get into this Yamish Alcinder thing, but you know, I only have like 19 other podcasts I can get on to, to talk about that. And I'll, I'll spare you. Um, uh, stay safe, as as I believe it was Judge Dredd used to say: "Be good, be strong, behave." <laughs> and um, uh, thanks for coming on, Jonah. I appreciate it. Same to you and your family. And uh, hey, this is something we will tell our grandkids about someday, presuming we're around to tell them that. Okay, so uh, I can't quite say Jim has left the building because no one's leaving the building anymore. Um, but he has left our virtual studio, and I'm uh, here alone, although um, the dispatch team is, is on the other end of the line. Um, the, uh, there are a bunch of things you should uh, check out if you can get a chance. Uh, we got a lot of great stuff that's been coming out at The Dispatch. Just go to thedispatch.com. Um, I did this uh, long piece, sort of quasi-symposium thing about movies, political movies, because um, I found that when I talk to youngins and I make certain movie references, look, I, I get when I make a reference to uh, The Big Bus or Chuds or um, Dark Star, which was a um, fantastic low-budget John Carpenter sci-fi movie that almost nobody has heard of. Um, I understand that people aren't going to catch my references, 
But, you know, when you make references to some of the great classics, whether it's Casablanca or Network or Facing the Crowd or Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, then really it's the it's the culturally illiterate who are to blame and not uh, people like me who are steeped in the cinematic canon. And so anyway, I, uh, I got annoyed about how many movies some of the youngsters around the dispatch hadn't seen that I thought were important for um, talking, writing, interviewing about politics. And so I, I went and asked a bunch of people for their contributions and I put it all together and it's over on the website. Uh, but there's plenty of room to add more in the comments, so please do that. Um, also, uh, thanks for the positive feedback about the audio G file thing I did last Friday. I'm going to try and do something like it on a regular basis. We'll see. Maybe someone wants to sponsor it. We'll see. Um, I'm going to do it as sort of on the themes of the G file plus other things that have been, um, rattling around in my noggin over the course of the week, sort of notes on the week kind of thing. And, um, uh, we completely understand that uh, when there's so much economic uncertainty out there uh, that it's tough to justify necessarily uh, signing up for a uh, new publication. But we really are doing great work about sort of reporting on the pandemic, but also on the other stuff that we think that needs to be reported on and commented upon. And, um, and if you can't subscribe or you can't subscribe right now, we certainly understand um, but please do uh, spread the word about what we're doing and why we're doing it to people you think might be um, on the same team um, or interested in what we're trying to do. Uh, you know, that's the best marketing that we can get. So with that, uh, thanks again to everybody. Oh, and if you uh, if you're a paid member, uh, you can get the video of um, uh, the special cocktail hour event that left me with a hangover that I did for Glop with Rob Long and John Podoritz. Um, if you haven't seen the link in the morning dispatch, I will put it in the Wednesday uh, members only uh, G file. And um, with that, thanks again for listening. Everybody stay safe and I'll see you next time. Jonah, no, you won't because this is a podcast. I know that because of two authorities the Constitution, and Jesus Christ, because Jesus wrote the Constitution. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg of the Remnant Podcast, talking to you from uh, uh, World Day Drinking Headquarters in Washington, D.C. Um, today, uh, the dispatch, oh, sorry, words, they know come easy.